Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. The crowd is coming in, so welcome uh, this morning, both to our uh, community and family that are gathered here on this morning, and my particular thanks um, to our uh, panelists today, some of whom you had the opportunity to hear from on yesterday, uh, and some who will be presenting to us on uh, today, uh, Dr. Young, uh, Dr. M, uh, Dr. Hong, uh, Dr. Edmondson, uh, who was with us, and uh, Dr. Crump, both of whom will be presenting later today, and then Dr. Tran, uh, now you all uh, will work with me uh, as I try to make this uh, operate technically well. Um, and so we're going to jump right in. We had a variety of conversations yesterday and there was such a tremendous richness to the discourse. So there are uh, a, a wide range of issues, uh, certainly that uh, I uh, witnessed participants raising uh, or that were prompted by the, the, again, rich discourse we have. Uh, I'm gonna ask you if you'd be gracious enough and uh, I'm not gonna say I can organize this well. Uh, let, me, let me begin, uh, I like a response from all of you, but let me again begin uh, on a bit of the conversation that uh, I and Dr. Young had. Uh, and what I'd ask for you to respond to uh, is that part of what we're attempting to do is both to identify uh, the obstacles that face our various communities to share our stories uh, so that through an empathetic ear, we might begin to build the foundation of substantive uh, unity and solidarity. Uh, and part of that requires also engaging in some of the challenging discussions that face our community. Uh, let me again, uh, beginning with uh, Dr. Young, and I'll, I'll call you out since you, I don't know if, you're, if these uh, photos are showing up on your screen in the same order as mine. But let's begin with, with uh, a bit of a description as to what do you perceive to be the major obstacles facing our communities in our efforts to build solidarity between Asian American communities and African American communities. Let's take just a second to make sure that we're lifting up what the challenges are for us so that we might adequately address them also during the course of our discussion. So Dr. Young, if you'd be gracious enough to, to start us off, uh, I welcome it. Thanks, Dr. Lattimore. Thanks everyone for inviting me and glad to be here again this morning. Um, it's a great question. What are the obstacles to solidarity and uh, unity? And yeah, my first thought were that um, in certain ways, our communities are segregated, that without <clears throat> clear interaction, without interpersonal relationships, it's hard to really understand, to work together and to um, build that unity. So I think there, I mean, the United States is more segregated now than since what, the 1970s, 1980s. Um, Asian Americans, some Asian Americans live in really multiracial neighborhoods. I think it's also based by class that um, there are class barriers in, in working together that some Asian Americans who come through professional visas, through graduate degrees, they enter um, segments of the community that are um, probably more white. And so they have less interaction with other communities um, 
Latinos, even low income Asians. So Asians are themselves really segregated from each other, the most um, polarized group by income inequality. So for me, I guess my first response is that um, the two key barriers are um, sometimes class differences, which divide a lot of us and divide, again, the Asian American community, and then um, segregation, physical segregation. Um, when asked, how do you know about Asian Americans, um, Blacks, Latinos say they, they learn about us through news and media, not through friendships, not through family. And so I think that then leads to a skewed perspective, possibly. Okay. Thank you, Dr. M. Uh, uh, Dr. M? Um, <laughs> I aspire to be a doctor. <laughs> um, <laughs> basically, I do want to say that people know about us through news and media because we are absent in most other platforms, uh, whether it's in history or on stage, but even in news and media, there's very little uh, information about the API community. And if and when it is told is usually some kind of vilification or minimization, which I think both black and Asian and all communities of color who don't have power uh, experience. But I would just say as a wholesale level, Asians are consistently left out. I was told repeatedly from so many uh, friends in the Black community that we just don't know each other, uh, but particularly that they really don't know the Asian community. Um, and I think the more opportunities that we can get together. The second piece is really lack of funding. Uh, again, you know, we're fighting uh, with each other against limited resources, but particularly in the AAPI community, again, I am in some of those decision-making rooms and the resource that comes to AAPI community is pathetically low. Like in California, uh, we're literally getting one fourth a share uh, if you were to compare with the black community um, and it's supposed to be divided like with 50 groups, 100 languages. So these type of gatherings help us to get to know each other and that requires resources, right? But those type of resources don't come to our community because of that model minority myth. And I'll stop here. I could go on. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Hong. Good morning, Dr. Lattimore. Um, I think, I mean, it's a great question. I think that it's both structural and it's also individual or personal. Echoing, I think, what um, both Russell and Haypin shared. I mean, I think there, there are ways that public discourse and just things like the model minority do pit um, communities of color against each other. And I think, you know, as I suggested yesterday, I mean, these are just fundamental features of white supremacy um, and racial capitalism. Like it, these, these um, systems and structures by nature, they pit racialized communities against each other because um, differentiation, racialization is part of how exploitation um, and oppression is, is allowed to perpetuate. I mean, these are just fundamental aspects of the systems themselves. And so in that sense, I don't think we should be surprised um, that structurally, it, so, so the structure, so structures and systems, they make it difficult because um, inherently, right? We're all just positioned in ways that are oftentimes oppositional. And so it takes, I think, even more deliberate effort and intentionality and grace um, and labor to kind of come to places where, so despite kind of being embedded in these structures, it's how how do we as people connect? How do we as people kind of share our pain and 
how are we together able then to move forward? I mean, I think a lot about, I mean, I think a lot about racial reconciliation discourses. I've been writing about these in my research. Um, and I know that, you know, 1992, it, it unleashes a white led racial reconciliation movement among particularly white evangelicals. And so I've been reading, I've been rereading um, Dr. Bill, uh, William Pinnell's um, The Coming Race War. And I've been um, talking with him for my research. And, you know, when you think about these kind of racial reconciliation movements, the original theology of racial reconciliation began with, with, with black folks, black leaders like John Perkins, Tom Skinner. I mean, these were the folks who talked about the importance of cross-racial relationships and friendships. But the point was those friendships were not supposed to, those relationships were not supposed to stop there. Those weren't the goal, those weren't the end. The idea was that these cross-racial relationships were the vehicle for structural change. And that was the actual goal. Um, but then that kind of structural critique and that structural system of racial reconciliation gets watered down um, in the 90s to be just about you know, um, having cross-racial friendships and, and that being the end. So the kind of promise keepers um, model of racial reconciliation. And so I think, I think you need both. Like you need to have trust and relationships where folks can talk about really hard issues. Like you need to have places, um, like yesterday we had a small group after, you know, I joined one of the discussions after the first session. And it's in these smaller discussions where you're able to talk about things like, like people have individuals, we have, we have, there's individual pain, right? So when I think about the, the kind of big stories we talk about with, with um, you know, even the, what happened in LA in 1992, it's like, you know, um, folks, you know, African-American folks going into Korean stories have pain. They, are, they have memories of kind of being followed. And like, what does that actually mean? Like there's pain there. Um, and then for Korean folks, there's, different kinds of pain there. And I think I talked about some of that in my own family yesterday. And what does that mean for the 2300 Korean store owners um, and Koreans who are affected um, in places like LA in 1992? So you need both, right? So it, it's kind of, it's structural and we live in these structures that make it inherently difficult to kind of move forward together. But then on the kind of individual level, these are the kind of vehicles, right? These cross-racial relationships that are built in trust these are the things that can help us, um, I would argue, right? These are the things we need to move forward. And I think the speaker today will talk about this. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Edmondson, uh, would you care to add into this, this part of the discourse? Yes, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Lattimore. I was just gonna say ditto at first <laughs> to, to many of the things that have already been said. I think, I think what I would potentially add you know, I was uh, listening to the answers and what came to mind. I was thinking about um, one of Martin Luther King Jr.'s, uh, one of his many prominent works, The Strength to Love. And I thought about what it means to have the strength to care, the strength to empathize. And these are things that from a um, psycho-emotional standpoint actually do cost us. Coming out of and, and being uh, in this world, of the, I, I dare say post-pandemic, because we're virtual right now, right? Um, being in this very real cultural trauma of COVID-19 and uh, political trauma from 2016 into now and before, mm -hmm. um, people are truly exhausted. And what it takes to show up and to connect and to extend, it does take a type of, of kind of psychic strength, um, psychological, emotional strength, and and maybe even spiritual strength, more importantly, to compel us to do that. So I often talk to my students about um, the enterprise of learning uh, 
for, for the sake of love, that love ought to motivate us to learn about other people so that we're not just kind of puffed up getting knowledge about people or a situation or an understanding historically or presently, but it, that learning is on the agenda of deep loving. So to conclude, uh, you know, it's like if you talk to one spouse who has no idea what the other spouse's favorite color is, you might think to yourself, well, do you really love your spouse? You don't have the basic knowledge or understanding. And so I think uh, we have to have the strength to love in order to learn and to connect with other people well. And there, as has already been alluded to, there are a number of forces, not new, sociological, historical, deeply, deeply knitted into the fabric of the American story, for example, uh, that would distract us and exhaust us and incentivize us in some cases, whether it's in-group incentive or external perceptions of incentive, not to connect and form relationships that in which solidarity can flourish. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Edmondson, <laughs> for your contribution. Uh, Dr. Crump. Uh, well, thanks for having me on, and thanks for the panel and um, and for the for the conference and for your leadership, uh, Dr. Latimer. Um, Trent, I, I apologize. Can you uh, let me go to Dr. Crump, and then I wanted to. Uh, I'll end on you, if I may, if that's okay. Okay, Dr. Lattimore, thank you very much. Um, I want to echo what Dr. Edmondson said about not knowing each other. And I just wonder, given that this is a Christian context, to what degree do African-American churches and Christian churches and African-American churches and Korean churches just not know each other? And so I, I come from small town America and I really can't think of many, if any, Korean churches. And so for a country boy like me, this question is, is relevant in theory. Uh, and so I just wonder what it might take for Christian communities, both African-American and Korean to be vulnerable and get to know each other. Uh, African-American liturgy is pretty distinct uh, I would imagine something like that goes on in, in most Korean um, Korean churches, but I wonder what bonds of affiliation might be forged uh, in light of a commitment to um, to follow Jesus. Uh, I'll admit that that's fairly Pollyannish and perhaps naive, but to my mind, learning is is fun, and so um, it may it may be helpful in the context of American religion to think about um, something Professor Jung said along the lines of, of, uh, of churches and that churches are just still very segregated. Um, and so uh, 11 o'clock on Sunday or whenever, whenever churches meet is still very segregated. And, and how can we go about changing that? The other comment I'll make is with regards to students. And so, um, in the context of PWIs, um, Asian students sometimes come to me and, and we have a connection. And sometimes you can't explain it, but you know what it is. And so I just remember uh, a student that's graduating this year. She was in my um, kind of first year course and she just really didn't like the school. And as far as she could tell, I was perhaps the only, the only um, kind of adult who she could resonate with. And I didn't try to explain it away or, or try and get to know what it meant to understand what she was going through. We just talked about stuff and I listened. 
And, and so I think um, that's really important. And, and so I think humans are naturally inquisitive and to the degree that we incorporate all these identity markers and put them before just being in a context of a PWI, uh, I think we do ourselves a disservice by not treating each other just as as humans trying to make sense of what it means to learn and and to love. Thank you, thank you, Doctor Doctor uh, Tran, uh, and um, I'm I'm sorry I didn't I probably wasn't clear coming over the audio before, but I do want to come back to you uh, and and welcome your contribution, and also want to encourage those who are gathered in the audience if you have questions uh, to certainly put those in the Q and A as well. Dr. Tran, the floor is yours, sir. I was going to say it's appropriate that I got confused with Dr. Swan <laughs> and Dr. Crump because a our names sound the same, and everything I'm going to say is just going to parrot what I think he's going to say. Um, I, 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 there's not a lot for me to say here because my entire lecture following is all about this question about the challenges. I think, um, I mean, in a word maybe the reason we can't get to a serious place of solidarity among black folks and Asian folks is just a lack of honesty. Um, it's, this is really hard. This, to me, solidarity isn't a byproduct or a bonus of the revolution of liberation. It is the very articulation of it. And so it's really hard. There is nothing harder. I think we keep on thinking this will be just a side effect of it. No, if you understand racism and race, as I think many of us do, uh, and as I've tried to articulate in terms of racial capitalism, solidarity and coalitional life is itself the expression that revolution has occurred, right? And so uh, these are impossibly difficult realities. And so I've, I've started actually, and this is what I'll talk about, I've started to think that along with the theology of re revolution and liberation, we need a theology which the black radical tradition, especially in its religious key has long articulated, we need a, we need a theology of waiting, of what it means uh, when revolution stalls. Um, uh, because we have structures set against us that operate, us, operate on us individually in these kinds of performances that we all feel when we come to conferences like this. Asian Americans sit around deferring to everyone else um, not knowing where their place is. And these performances are just characteristic of these con con conferences. How do we get to a different kind of place? That's a question I'm asking. And I'm, I'm starting to wonder whether we can. Uh, um, there's no question in my mind that we should continue to push towards that. But there seem to be structural realities uh, that that's in a sense what racial capitalism does, right? It, the point is to divide and conquer, to stratify, to differentiate, to enable a society built on extraordinary inequality and oppression and domination. The first move to that is to divide and conquer. Um, and so this is, these are incredibly difficult questions. Um, I mean, in some ways, Dr. Lattimore, the power of your question to us is really the power of, uh, will we ever get to liberation? Um, so... Anyways, I'll have a lot more to say about this later on. You know, and, um, and go, go ahead, please. Could I just add one more piece? Um, you know, I think about Susan Boyle. I feel like we, with Britain's Got Talent, 
you know, I think that for many of us as communities of color, but particularly AAPI community, even more so that um, we are Susan Boyles of the world in which, you know, when we come on stage, we don't look the part. Um, and so the judge and everyone else, this is uh, her and the rest of us. And it's only, you know, when she got on that platform uh, and when she's saying um, that the world was able to recognize her gift and be blessed by her gift. And in turn, her life was blessed. And I feel mm -hmm. that for many of us, you know, for Susan Boyce, she had that gift before and after Britain's Got Talent, but it was that platform for visibility, right? Uh, and mentorship that allowed her to be a world-class now, you know, record-breaking singer, et cetera. Um, and I feel for many of us, but particularly again for the API community, uh, we do have a language barrier, but a lot of times we're just not given any kind of platform for visibility. And from what I've seen is that when we shine our light, people then see that light, become curious, and that leads to invitations or uh, seeking out. And I feel like that is a crucial piece that for many of us in this country, we're not given that platform where our light could shine uh, that in turn could bless the world and in turn could be blessed. And that leads to many invitations. My experience is that every time I'm on these type of platforms, it leads to more invitations, more partnerships, you know, more relationships, et cetera. And I'm wondering, you know, how can we address that, creating more platforms for one another so that we could see each other, get to know each other, work together, et cetera. Uh, thank you so much. Let me offer this question, and, and uh, Dr. Hawkins, whenever you're able to, to comment or come into the conversation, please do. But let me offer this question. So many of you have commented on the uh, lack of understanding of the respective communities uh, and the ways in which that has uh, frustrated some of the discourse and the solidarity building. Um, and so in an effort to uh, address the issue of knowingness, uh, let me offer this, and I, I really offer this more from uh, my, both my time as a pastor and a scholar. So I wonder how each of you might respond to the following. Either uh, there are members of the African-American community who perceive that the Asian community has not been supportive of its efforts around the fight for justice uh, and the Black Lives Matter and many of the public protests that uh, and, and again, this is both a generalization and, and may not be fully factually true, but that's at least a perception that's there. And I think it might be fair to say within the Asian community, there are some who've wondered the degree of commitment that the African-American community has had, particularly in light of some of the recent issues of uh, violence that has been uh, broadcast on TV screens throughout the country. Uh, so if those so you're welcome to challenge the presupposition that those suspicions exist. But, but if, if those suspicions are present, uh, then how do you respond to the concerns of the, uh, the other community, whether it is other as in the African-American community, other as in the Asian-American community? How do you respond to that underlying foundation of suspicion that might be a part of this discourse? Okay, well, I'll start. <laughs> I was hoping everyone else do the heavy lifting I could just add. <laughs> um, so first of all, I think 
I am first of all grateful for social media, the power of social media, because mm -hmm. I believe that for many of us in the past have shown up, but a lot of times we get cut off <laughs> in cut right. off in the picture, right? And history. So first of all, in that way, I think knowing our ancestor, our other folks have, who look like us have shown up definitely fosters more engagement, more mobilization. And the fact that that was erased uh, for us uh, seems to reinforce that we don't ever show up or that we don't care. The second piece is that again, with social media, at least, you know, we don't have to ask for permission anymore. <laughs> it doesn't require a lot of money. We can mobilize ourselves. We could show ourselves in visible ways. Unfortunately, as mentioned, you know, I've, ex I've said this in other rooms, but you know, an Asian per person could say God is good. And an African-American person next to me might say God is good. And what will show up on the media or will be recorded in history would be not the Asian, uh, but the African-American individual. So again, I believe that social media has been a powerful tool. Um, and we're just starting to, to really have some of the tools amongst the Asian community that we don't have to ask permission or funding to mobilize ourselves and educate ourselves. And so I think in that way, that is a piece. The other part that I think is also part of the honest conversation is that as Asians, when we show up in racial discussions, right off the bat, it's framed in such a way that our pain is often erased or minimized in that hierarchy. And I don't think that also fosters solidarity. And so I think some of the honest conversations and also I don't want to just say honest, but more like opening of eyes, more opportunities like this, where, you know, all our pains, um, there shouldn't be a racial hierarchy in terms of, you know, like medical hierarchy, <laughs> heart attack, <laughs> lung cancer, a broken leg. They all need to be addressed um, in the same way with racial challenges in our community that we need more of that and the last piece is that i keep talking about funding it takes funding to mobilize people to bring them into these spaces to foster study to to do advocacy to do media relations government relations community relations and when you are just barely making it that makes it more difficult. So at a structural level, I really hope that more resources can come to both our communities, but particularly again, API community, we have so many languages. I keep talking hundred languages, it's ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so to kind of get all of us going um, is a, a gap there. But the final piece is for so long, we've been told our voices don't matter. I, I'm just starting to embrace the power of my voice. And I want to thank the Black community that during the Atlanta massacre, um, I saw a lot of key Black voices speak out for the Asian community and the calls that I received. And I write, and I experienced like, oh, wow, you know what? These voices were so important to me. Then in turn, I'm going, my voices Right, my voice to stand and reach out to others must be valuable to them as well. And so it's the lack of experience for us to have experienced solidarity in that way and having our voices minimized um, is something that we're having to unlearn um, as well. Very good, very good. Others who may care to weigh in on this. Um, I could chime in, you know, as a sociologist, um, 
Asian Americans are the racial group most in favor of Black Lives Matter after African Americans. So we know that Asian American, the reality is that Asian Americans support Black Lives Matter. We know from surveys that African Americans view Asian Americans as fellow people of color, that they're the racial group most likely to see us as people of color. Asian Americans were most likely um, to vote against Trump because racism was the motivating factor to, to challenge racism and to seek racial justice. So the, for me, the reality is really different from the perception. Um, and people may get their perceptions, I think, sadly, because through, through media, like Kay Peng was talking about. And of course, the way our social media and media are, are constructed is that it's created by algorithms where you get fed the same type of information that you seem to like. So you get the same information again and again. And so I think reality really differs from perceptions that we get from media and social media and that that's media and social media are one of the structural forces that divide us. And we have to really recognize that. And if we wanna change the perceptions, we have to change the structures like media and social media that divide us. Um, I, I also think, okay, where does this perception of non-support come from? And it could be you go to the rallies and you look at the rallies. And if you go to a stop AAPI hate rally, it's mostly Asian. If you go to a Black Lives Matter rally, it's mostly African-American. And then you gain that perception that, oh, where, why aren't people showing up for us? And um, again, the fact that people don't show up at a rally doesn't necessarily indicate that they don't support your cause, your efforts, um, your, your values. It's just that, well, there was a pandemic, first of all, and you know that sort of scares a lot of people away. But secondly, um, everybody we recognize has limited time and resources. If people are really devoting their work to Black Lives Matter, I really don't expect them to have that much time to join a Stop API Hate rally. I'm working full time to stop API hate. I don't have that much time to go to a rally for Black Lives Matter, even though I talk about it in every opportunity I can. So I think um, showing up is um, takes time, takes energy. And I really appreciate those who do do that type of solidarity work. But I think there's lots of other ways we could demonstrate solidarity. Okay. Thank you. Any others? I mean, I, I think I would add that um... History bears examples of expressions of sol expressions of solidarity, but I but I think, uh, generally speaking, um, because of fear, because of strategic ignorance, because of the internalization of uh, anti-blackness and anti-Asian um, biases, that um, people are not <laughs> moving forward in solidarity as they could or or should. Uh, especially um, in light of maybe for, for the Christian population, in light of what we claim our convictions are. So I do think there is a legitimate inadequacy, and I, but I do agree that there is going to be an amplification of tension, of distrust, of uh, conflict um, so, so to kind of increase the likelihood that there will not be expressions of solidarity. Um, you know, and I think the, the other thing um, that I would add is that the, the case for solidarity, it can be made, I think, ethically, um, convictionally, based on like who, who we claim to be. 
But also there's another way which has to do with the interconnected nature of our struggles. And to the extent that people have been able to make the case that um, my oppression here connects to someone else's oppression there, uh, it makes it more likely for people to reach across and, and join hands. Um, and I'll just give you a short example, and this is more of an in-group example. Um, I've worked with a number of people around the topic of reparations related to, for African-Americans. And there is a very real tension uh, about how do we define which African-Americans, if, if this is to ever happen, <laughs> uh, would receive reparations. And there is a real tension from an African diasporic standpoint about uh, when, when does racial trauma begin that would be met with the necessary uh, reparation response. And even within that group, you will see um, kind of a ranking, a ranking of oppression, um, a, a ranking or categorization of blackness uh, around that topic of reparation until people in that group understand the interconnected nature of the struggle of the African diaspora, then I, as someone who's a descendant of the transatlantic slave trade, that my narrative is tied directly to someone from a West African noun tribe who lost half of their tribe <laughs> uh, in the transatlantic slave trade, that our stories are actually deeply interconnected. Um, it will be very easy to create and sow kind of an entitled dissension and division. And so in that African diasporic example, you can see how there's a great deal of tension. Imagine how much more as we're thinking about people, again, representing different, different ethnic backgrounds as well. So we have to make the case for how our struggles are deeply interconnected and therefore we have a, um, a, a kind of a moral duty, but also a practical um, incentive to, to join hands and to resist injustice together. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Ebelinson. Uh, any others before I go to the, the uh, question lifted up in our Q&A? Um, I, I think I'd just like to echo a lot of what um, Dr. Edmondson just shared. I think, I mean, yesterday during um, my talk, I, I asked folks to kind of think about extending benefit of the doubt to folks to try to think about a way to kind of hold all of our collective pain intention without trying to slot them into a hierarchy or which is how I think typically folks in our society operate. The thing is that requires a lot of trust. Um, and I think, you know, that it's easier to do in some contexts than others. Um, and it also for folks who have been really, who have trauma and who have a lot of pain, like that's hard to do um, when it may be in situations you have done that and you've been, um, you felt betrayed um, by folks. I mean, I think, you know, even and speaking, you know, myself as a Korean American or Asian American on talking on these issues, when I when I write a talk, you know, I think about like, how do I like make clear that I recognize that everything that Asian Americans have received here in the US is based on the black freedom struggle. I mean, it's like I teach that in the classroom. I think most US historians today teach that in the classroom like all the time. And so I think we just assume that folks know that that's where we're coming from. But you know, what if in a talk with people I don't know, you know, like, like it literally comes down to just folks, it, it's rhetorically we have to do this in our talks to think about kind of how do we make sure folks, like how do we speak to audiences, um, diverse audiences in ways that can 
help people trust us if they don't have prior knowledge or prior understanding of where we're coming from. And that's, I guess that kind of, I guess what I was asking yesterday is like in situations like this, even if you don't know the person 100%, to kind of just try to extend benefit of doubt if you can, if that's possible, to try to think like, how do we resist zero sum thinking, right? Which again is a fundamental feature of white supremacy and, and racial capitalism. But I recognize how hard that, so I, I, I recognize how hard that is to do in practice. And this is the messiness, this is the challenge um, that gets really, that gets really hard. Like for example, since yesterday in my head, I've been like, I've been like really like wondering and, and like having a lot of anxiety about like, did I do enough to make sure people recognize I wasn't trying to downplay the pain of like Latasha Harlan's death, the pain that black folk, so these are the things that I think as an Asian American scholar, I think a lot about because I want folks to know kind of where I'm coming from. But again, it's with folks who already know me, there is kind of built in trust. So if I don't kind of, it, it's, it, it may sound kind of, you know, I don't know, like there aren't many opportunities to have to even have conversations like these. And so I think these are really mm -hmm. precious opportunities. And I think many of the, many of us recognize that just how rare and in some ways, how kind of even this gathering is an act of resistance, or it's a way of thinking about, right, how to think against um, the structures that we're all embedded in, in ways that are really important, but that are extremely hard, I think, as several speakers have, have emphasized. And so that's why I do think, um, again, you know, I think we can talk about the structures, and this is what I do for a living um, as a historian, but in terms of the practical living out, it is about building trust um, and I know that a lot of organizations, Black Lives Matter, like the folks who, uh, like Garza, like folks who came together and kind of organized the movement with Stop AAPI Hate. I, I was on a panel with Cynthia Choi earlier this week. And so I heard the story of Stop AAPI Hate came together with three community activists who already knew each other because like they already had a lot of built-in trust because they knew each mm -hmm. other from many other um, campaigns and many other movements they'd been a part of. And I think that's true for activism organizing and many different communities. And so thinking about like how we can build these communities of trust that will enable us to extend that benefit of the doubt um, and to kind of create places where we can hold, right, um, collective pain. Like, I think that's a really important um, step to move forward. I wanna add, um, so earlier, um, Christina mentioned about the, um, the ways that our communities, right, morally and conviction, et cetera, but there's just a real practical uh, reality, for example, that economically, Korean and Black home ownership rate is the same. And I have to say, I have to repeat it again, <laughs> Korean and Black home ownership rate is the same. And I'm going to be sharing some of those data points um, in my presentation that we actually have a lot of shared challenges. Um, the racist system does not discriminate against who they are racist towards. Um, and so um, in that way, there are, and I could go on in so many spaces where it's not a matter of just conviction or moral or even a Christian thing to do, but just being human being is a very practical thing that we have shared challenges. I also want to just kind of highlight, you know, I think what Jane was expressing even after her presentation yesterday, like all this, the thoughts, that is a pain that I think Asian Americans carry. Um, in this country, I talked about the racial hierarchy in which 
a lot of times our pain continues to be raised. And then when we show up and we try to share also that our pain is also painful to us and we're victims of the same racist system um, that we, because usually when, we're, when we do show up in the room, if we ever bother to even have the courage to say something, usually it's stopped um, immediately. Um, and, and, and so the fear that we will be somehow, you, you know, shut down, erased, misunderstood or criticized is real. And even in my presentation today, where I'll be also addressing about Latasha Harlins, you know, during that same period, 25 Korean store owners were killed. I wonder, you know, the fact that Rodney King, that video was showed you know, day in, day out, leading to the verdict. And the shooting of Latasha Harlins was also showed in day in, day out, superimposed right next to Rodney King. What if the 25 store owners that were killed by their own customers, what if that film was showed day in, day out? You know, uh, I wonder what the outcome would have been. And so again, the I, I'm gonna talk about the Squid Game too, but you know, the game master that set the game up, you know, we're being, again, pitted against one another um, based on what narrative gets highlighted and replayed over and over again uh, versus maybe some of the other realities and truths. At the end of the day, like, again, we're all victims. And I hope that more of that type of conversation, just like we're having now, will be so helpful for both our communities to stand in solidarity. Uh, amen. Amen. Uh, 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 Dr. Crump, it looked like you had something to add to this. I I did not. I, oh. <laughs> I, I told you I'm from the country and I, I really meant that. And so I'm just I'm just sitting back and learning. So um, okay. thank you, though. Fair enough. Fair enough. So this may be a, I do want to, again, move to one of the questions in the Q&A, but I, but I have to ask this, uh, and it's prompted by Reverend M's uh, comments, but uh, as a sociology, sociologist among us, Dr. Young, it may be, uh, this may be falling your bailiwick. So uh, um, from the responses that I've heard, it seems to suggest that the perceived quantitative differences between these two groups is more the function of myth and perception setting, um, and that these two groups exist in some similar context. But that seems to require one to ignore the Brookings uh, Institute report on the differences in college graduation rates, um, the uh, Fed's examination of uh, capital ac access for these two communities, and a number of other seemingly quantitative differences and disparities uh, that exist between these communities. So I just, I wonder, uh, or, uh, is the suggestion that, that these differences don't matter, that these differences are illusions, um, or how do, we, how do we negotiate the interaction between these two communities and acknowledge that their experiences have been different without creating necessarily a hierarchy of difference? I don't want to sound like the broken record, but this is a space that I've been in. Uh, the model for our organization came from uh, African-American church, First Amy Church. So I learned a lot 
from uh, Reverend Mark Whitlock and uh, Pastor Cecil Murray and others. Um, um, I do want to say that um, perhaps in the aggregate um, for the AAPI community, like as mentioned, is 50 groups, 100 languages. Perhaps that may potentially be true, as some of the studies show. But when you actually disaggregate the data, you'll see that so many of the subgroups are in the same plight. The one exception is that, except for the Pacific Islanders who have the highest dropout, high school dropout rate, even more than black and brown communities. But overall, if you aggregate, definitely Asians shoot through the roof, which I will share in my presentation. Um, but again, if you look at promotion rate, actually Asians have the lowest of any group, even in an aggregate. And so there is discrimination in that way. Even if you look at LA County in terms of assets, actually Hispanic had the lowest assets and then it was Korean and then black. Um, so again, when you disaggregate the data, it tells another story. And again, that whole game master, what gets lifted up, right? And what doesn't get told, um, again, is continuing to pit our communities against one another. I think that, again, there's opportunities for solidarity to look at the way the system discriminates each community in different ways, and sometimes in shared ways. And how can we fight the system to work together um, as well? Yeah, I... I echo Haypin's point that it's taking an Asian perspective is always both and, right? That both we sh groups share commonalities, support the fight for racial justice. Um, and as I said, in, at the start, there are class differences that segregate both the Asian from the African community and the Asian community from within. And so, um, We've, we, I think we've been in agreement that structures divide us, that oppression Olympics separate us, that it's easy to be divided through racial capitalism. And so then the question for me is, well, what is our source of solidarity? What is our point of unity? What do we work towards? And for me, it's our unity in Christ is our source of solidarity. It's that we share the same baptism, that we have the same Holy Spirit moving within us to draw us together. And that's another reality that has to be acknowledged, a supernatural reality that's not based in our material experiences, not based on perceptions of media, but based on our faith. And so how do we build a solidarity, a real true Christian fellowship based on the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and the church? And how does that become a beloved community? So my, for me, the source of solidarity it, it, it does start from we have common realities. It does start from we have common oppressions, but it also starts from being sinners redeemed, um, people in exile on, and on the way seeking liberation. It comes from having fellow hearts and worship for God. And so the real question for me is, we can base our solidarity the way secular society tries to build base its solidarity, but that's really weak. The question then is, is Christian solidarity and Christian fellowship strong enough? And I, I don't know, that's another big question. I see the church super polarized by politics and race. Can we be like disciples that come together across race, across politics and follow Jesus? Mm. 
You know, Russell, I want to, I want to say and because I feel like God created both in the sense of like, you know, we, so for me, I'm not in a wheelchair as an example. Um, and as a Christian, I could love someone in the name of Jesus for someone who might be in a wheelchair. Uh, but I think there is a whole world of a difference when I realize that I'm in a wheelchair and they're in a wheelchair that creates another level to be seen and to, to see. Um, and so I believe it's not a or, but an and. Um, and I've been in so many of these kind of like solidary prayer breakfasts after the riots. And it seems that on an individual level at that moment, you know, they are all loving to one another, but when they walk away, they have their, like for the black community, they have their lived experience of walking into a Korean owned liquor store and being followed and chased around. And so that pain, it still is there, regardless of the beautiful fellowship that they may have had, you know, in some solidarity prayer breakfast. Um, and that's what, for me, it was like, aha, that we need both. We need both to recognize that, you know, the lived experience of the black community and the customers and again, things like that, which again, I'll be talking more in my presentation, but also the lived reality of these store owners and just, you know, even for Sunja Du, you know, being shoplifted on average 40 times a week and the trauma of her son's life being threatened by gang members. Again, what is done is done and it's water on the bridge. But once we understand kind of the lived reality of not just Sunja Du, but all the other store owners and the reality of the black customer who walks in and the infuriation uh, and, you know, like how can we then deal with those challenges which are created by human conditions, right? It, we're all responding in a human way to human conditions that we all helped or the system helped to create. And instead of labeling each other as racist or you know whatever uh instead to again recognize that reality and address it so there is the supernatural and the spiritual dimension but i think god also created our social physical <laughs> dimensions as well that we should also utilize as well so and russell you you live out the christian faith you know what with all your pedigree you're living you know and living it out in you know great respect to you you know and i think more people and i aspire <laughs> and at the same time for people who are on the journey right let's give them some lower hanging fruits right <laughs> that they could kind of jump in as well <laughs> we amen. we all aspire to be you russell <laughs> and jesus <laughs> amen amen Amen. Any other who care to share a comment? And, and then I'll go to uh, one of the questions from our Q&A. I just want to say something to um, to give substance to your your question, Dr. Lattimore. Uh, I mean, in, in one of the cycle, what I call the revolutions of the model minority myth, one of the moves is to disaggregate data and to show that African-Americans and Asian-Americans are, are surely on the same footing. You do so by disaggregating Asian Americans as a group. Um, you could also do so by disaggregating um, African Americans by way of class, right? But there's, I think your question is something like this. There's something ab about the eye test that worries you, that there's something going on in that kind of move. And, and I want us to lean into this because the, I think there is an intuition um, that the disaggregating move doesn't quite get to the wholeness, the whole picture here. Uh, 
an, a, in, a, in a very controversial paper by uh, the sociologist Arthur Sakamoto and his colleagues, he actually shows that the disaggregation move doesn't take in consideration the long-term projections. In other words, it may be the case that there is some greater equality of oppression in the present moment, but if you look at the long-term projection um, based on the long-term history, then there seems to be a, a kind of persistent anti-Blackness that structurally keeps African-Americans uh, among the lower classes um, that continuously means that they won't have access um, to, to and, and, and that things will not be fairly distributed. And I think that's really important to hold on to. While we also do the move of trying to de disaggregate, I think, I think part of what this means also for Asian Americans is at the same time we try to give voice to the oppression against Asian Americans, we also need to name the complicity of Asian Americans in the persistence of anti-Blackness. It doesn't seem to me like these are opposed things. I, I, in, in some of the moves, we, we tend to think of these in, as oppositional, that we can only be victims. We, we can't simultaneously be victimizers. But if we understand, say, the complexity and power of racial capitalism on the one hand, and say the Christian account of sin on the other, it would seem that we have sophisticated no, uh, narratives and concepts to hold both at the same time. And I fear that if we don't, uh, then we'll consistently lean into stories that I describe as, you know, um, not entirely honest about the predicaments that we're in. And, and if we're not, we, if we don't begin there, it's going to be hard to build a solidarity that's strong because it's not truthful. Dr. Tran, thank you. Uh, and, and thanks uh, to each of you who've added considerably uh, to this conversation. And I think the, the one point I do want to lift up is if there is to be any progress, there has to be an, an honest account on all parts of both the uh, harm that's been suffered, but also the complicity that might be present as well. Um, and so I think that each of us are navigating that from different perspectives, uh, but that's the, that's the important work that's being done here uh, and that I certainly applaud. Um, I do want to offer, and, and I guess this may uh, get a little bit to some of this conversation. Um, I see, let's see. Okay, uh, I'm, uh, let me pull this one up, show on stage. Uh, in Christian community, to what extent is our reaching out in reconciliation dependent on the other party's willingness to reciprocate? Can we reach out humbly, even if the other party does not do the same? Um, so again, I welcome um, any respondents to this uh, question offered to us by uh, uh, Dr. Lee, one of my colleagues here at the seminary. I, I should have acknowledged early on that I do uh, accept silence as uh, applause. So I appreciate the standing ovation. Uh, the question, but yeah. I do. And let's start with uh, Dr. Hawkins, who's now uh, joined us visually and audibly. Dr. Hawkins, you have a. My apologies for my video off. Of yeah, I think we have to um, take the initiation and can't base our outreach on the response of the other. Um, and I think we really have to be very aggressive. Um, and attempting to engage in conversation um, about reconciliation 
Um, because right now we're at a state where in many of our political leaders are saying, don't converse with those you don't agree with. Um, much of the leadership has placed us in a uh, place, I think, that's unimaginable in many of our minds if we had had this conversation five years ago, uh, or maybe six years ago. <laughs> but I, I do think that the people of faith especially, um, I'm coming to a conviction that I think that people who are very progressive as far as their political views based on their faith um, as a Christian, as a Muslim, as a person of the Jewish faith, um, we're going to be a remnant. We're going to be a remnant, especially those who are talking about justice. They're not going to, there's not going to be a lot of agreement. There's not going to be a lot of support, even from our own communities. And so I think we can't allow that to deter us, that we've got to continue forward on this path of faith, continue forward to try to bring about the beloved um, community, to continue forward to reflect the kingdom of God. And, you know, teachings from Jesus tells us to extend outreach um, to those who even reject us. You know, I, still, I, I must acknowledge, he says, wipe the dust from your feet as well. But I do think that there are individuals out there who need to hear our voices who might initially be in opposition to us. And that the only way that we're going to have some type of uh, sincere, legitimate dialogue is to be very assertive in our desires to reach out. And I want to add that there's the question from Bonnie about a moment of racial reconciliation. And I want to say that Latasha Harlins is the elephant in the room when we talk about LA riots. And, um, you know, we've done some uh, big campaigns around the LA riots for the 20th, 25th, and the same for the 30th. And someone suggested on the 25th that I should reach out to Latasha Harlan's family. And I said, <laughs> no way, <laughs> you know, not with a 10 foot pole. Um, but for the 30th, it felt different. I felt like it was an assignment from God with lots of trepidation, with lots of prayer, <laughs> but also encouragement. Uh, especially from friends in the black community, but also leaders from um, my board. Um, I did reach out again with great fear, <laughs> but I, I, I just need to do it as assignment from God. And I am happy to say, and I could tell a little bit more at our, our, my presentation, long story short, it was beautiful. She came to our event. Um, she gave me a hug and we were, we ended up on the front page of the LA times and the California section last Saturday. And she sent me a text after the fact saying, sending love and massive respect. Um, and we're doing more things at, in, at, in the aftermath. So I just want to give one example of, of where our faith and also solidarity and the common shared challenges all play a role uh, in leading to, again, true solidarity. Amen. Amen. Well, listen, I would uh, love to uh, continue our conversation for another four or five hours uh, because it is so rich and rewarding, but uh, we do have our speakers up who are going to continue some of these conversation threads and introduce others. Uh, I'm so thankful to our community that has chosen to participate this morning. So incredibly thankful to each of uh, these great scholars and pastors who have uh, joined in to give their thoughts uh, as an offering to our community that we might pursue what I pray is and believe is a common goal. Uh, and that is the solidarity of these communities for the advancement and the well-being of the human community uh, as a whole. That the progress we make here has great repercussions 
uh, on the well-being of this country and our respective communities. So I'm, again, thankful to you. Listen, we're going to end this session. We're going to move right into uh, the next session and, uh, again, continue the discourse. Thank you for being here. Thank you, panelists. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences at ltiaa.com.